we're starting a new series this morning, and it's called Burnout. And what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks is we're going to be addressing some of the truths that underlie our exhaustion and some of those times where we have those feelings of inadequacy. This series is going to do three things. It's going to explore the mental games that we play on ourselves. It's also going to look at our need to understand our own wiring. And then finally, it's going to look at how important it is that we are in community with one another. Because you know what? One thing is for sure. If you've been around here at all, you know that this is a safe place where we can be vulnerable, right, together? This is the most accepting, loving room I think I know in all of church world. And today we're going to be talking about something that's really, really important. It's called the comparison game. You know the one I'm talking about, right? Have you ever played that game before where you're unhappy with yourself or with your life because you keep comparing yourself to someone else? How many ever played that game? Oh, come on, it's church. You can't lie here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you keep, you're unhappy with yourself or your life because you keep comparing yourself to someone else. And our scripture this morning is going to call, it's going to come from a letter that Paul wrote to his church in Galatia. He's writing to Galatia, and we're going to be reading from chapter 6. So if you have a Bible app on your phone or a Bible with you, we certainly have the scriptures here on the screen. I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. But our scripture is going to be coming from chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. And what I want you to know about this is that the Jews in this context were themselves enslaved people. They were enslaved. So their land had been occupied by Romans, right? So the Jews themselves are enslaved. But here's the interesting thing. Ironically, the Jews are also oppressing other people. In this context, they're oppressing the Gentiles. And you know how they're doing it? They're doing it with the law. Moses' law, the Mosaic law. So they're oppressing people, the Gentiles, by trying to hold them to these rigid, these uh, really, really uh, rigorous laws. Um, and they are using their, the, the compliance that they're insisting on of these Gentiles to oppress them. Isn't that funny? The oppressed people are oppressing others. They are demanding obedience to the laws. They're demanding, con they're, uh, demanding conversion. They're even demanding circumcision for the men. Ouch. And then they're attempting to require the Gentiles to do all of that in order for them to accept them. So, Paul, a lifelong Jew who has been converted on the road to Damascus to Christianity and is now a missionary and an early church planter in the church, is not having any of it, right? So he's writing this letter. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Now how? Gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted carry each other's burdens. And in this, you will fulfill the law 
of who? Christ. So Paul is not making this about the law of Moses. He's making it about the law of Christ. If anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they are deceiving themselves. Now, you ever met that person? They think they're something and they're not. Not all that and a bag of chips is what my mom used to say. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. This is each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves. For each one should carry their own load. So each person should carry their own load and carry others' burdens, right? Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. Now, how convicting is that? For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And then it mentions a specific group, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, thank you for these words from your apostle. Lord, have them search us. Allow us, God, to have a conversation, a holy dialogue with you and this word, God, today. May you be known. May your son be known. May your spirit be known to the extent that we will allow both to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, I attended the, and let me see if I can get all the acronym right, the North Texas Conference Annual Conference, <laughs> right? That's a big, for the United Methodist Church, I mean, tag that on, and it's super, super, super duper long. And it was at the first uh, church, first uh, UMC Richardson, and guess who I got to say hi to? JB. It was awesome to see him. He, was, he, he misses us so much. He's like, oh, but he sends his love. It's a three-day conference where business is done in the denomination. And the, all kinds of things take place at this. But these are really important things. Transitional things. Retirements take place. Uh, commissioning. Ordination takes place. And hallelujah, praise God, appointments take place. Take place. And I am so glad to report to you that I have been appointed to you for another year. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so, so thankful for that. Now, there are all kinds of things that are highlighted at this conference, new things that are happening in ministry all around the connection, and it's really cool to see all these things that are featured and highlighted. And on the one hand, it is super duper exciting to see how United Methodism is out there making and changing the world. It's cool. But on the other hand, it is very easy to become, for that setting, to become a game board in terms of comparing talent and resources and ideas and more. 
Have you ever been there? You ever been to something like that? Or in a situation where you could very quickly interpret it in a way that probably would not be helpful because it would cause you to measure yourself against others. You ever been in that situation? It could be professionally. I mean, for me, it was this annual conference. But it could be like take place in a performance review, right? Where you're, where you're evaluated against team members or departments. It could happen uh, in tenure. You ever had somebody play the tenure card on you before? Sit down, you're wet behind the ears. I've been around here a while, right? What about, uh, it, could be, it could be familial, you know? There's sibling rivalries, you know, always comparing. I've got two kids, they're 16 months apart, and let me tell you, it goes on nonstop, 24-7. By the way, pray for me, I'm with them while my wife's in El Salvador. To God help us all. But you know, those kids, they'll play, me and Rachel off of each other, you know? They'll compare us. If they don't like what I say to them, I want my mommy. If they don't like what she said, I want my daddy, right? We do this comparison game romantically, too. If you've ever been in a household where there have been previous marriages or previous relationships, you've probably uh, experienced some of this comparison game. Could be educational. We have state testing in our, in our schools that just happened not too long ago. Report cards. I just graduated seminary, and let me tell you, GPAs were a big deal. Degrees and certifications. Who's got the you know, greatest accomplishment, the, the most stripes on their robe? It could be athletic ability. I mean, these comparisons, they go on and on and on. Physical features. I've always been jealous of those dudes with dimples. My cheeks are just too fat for that. I don't have any dimples. And God forbid if you could grow a beard, mine would have a big hole in it like right here. It could be creativity, brainstorming, all of those things, ways that people are, are wired to share ideas and things like that. The point is, is that there are many venues and times in our lives that set us up to play the comparison game. And how we handle it, how we handle it can determine whether or not we live an enriched life of freedom and love or it can lead us to an exhausted existence of bondage and feelings of self-worthlessness now let me remind you of a story in the old testament about a guy named moses who one day finds himself in a conversation with god who has manifested as a burning bush on Mount Horeb. And Moses gets some work to do in this conversation. Now, God tells Moses, I have heard the cries of the Israelite people that were captive in Egypt at the time. And God tells Moses that he is there to help lead the Israelites out of Egypt and into a promised land that God has prepared for them. Moses asks, well, God of this burning bush, God, who am I? Who am I to lead them out of Egypt and deliver this entire nation from bondage? Who am I? And God assures Moses, hey, don't worry. I'm with you, right? Well, you would think that would be enough. For me, I'd be wetting my pants or something and be like, okay, cool, the bush is talking. I'm, I'm freaking out, just whatever you say. But that's not what Moses does. Moses asks, and who shall I say you are? Oh, 
That's an interesting one because God's, God's answer makes me laugh. God answers and tells, tell, tell them, I am sent you. <laughs> I am sent you. Okay. Well, Moses says, but, but what about King Pharaoh? And God says, oh, I got plans for him. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to him, and you're going to perform a bunch of mind-blowing wonders. <laughs> and it's going to flip them out, and it's going to put you in a position to go and grab all their swag. Moses is like, so we're going to go loot them? Huh. We're going to look at Exodus 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord did not appear to you? And the Lord says this to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took a hold of the snake, and it turned back into the staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to your first sign, they may believe the second. So God gives Moses a plan B. But... If they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some fresh water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, get this, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. This Moses guy cracks me up. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. But Moses said, <laughs> this guy, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. <laughs> Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. I'm sure the bush was like, ah. and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You think God didn't know Moses? <laughs> you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth 
and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hands so you can perform the signs with it. So what do we learn? <laughs> well, we learn a little bit about Moses. I wanted to look at just the three times that he speaks because they crack me up. I, I just can't get a... Uh, this is typical of what goes on in our heads when we're playing the comparison game during a meeting or during a conversation or during a day in our lives, right? Moses asks, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? But what is he really saying there? He's saying, you know what, God, uh, excuse me, <laughs> but uh, what if I look crazy because of you and what you're asking me to do? What if I look crazy? How many of you ever wondered that with God? Yeah, I'm looking. I'm still not convinced that this is an honest bunch. And then the second time that Moses speaks is really funny because I always hear this in British. I don't know why. <laughs> Pardon your servant, Lord. <laughs> I don't know why I do that. Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. <laughs> what is Moses really saying there? Uh, excuse me, God. I mean, excuse me, I am. <laughs> you can't use me. Right? I'm not good enough. You can't use me. I'm not good enough. How many of you have ever said that to God? Now, I'm really looking. A few more people are being honest. We're gaining ground here. Come on. You can't use me. I'm too flawed to free an entire nation. What are you thinking to suggest that you're going to use me, God? Even if you are God of the universe and created the mountain I'm standing on and the sea below that you will part and the human body that I occupy, you can't use me. Right? And then look at the third time he talks. Pardon your servant, Lord. <laughs> Please send someone else. What is he really saying? Uh, excuse me. I am. You don't know what you're doing, do you? <laughs> you poor dear. I am. Have you lost your mind? Moses was caught red-handed in the context of the very moment when God revealed his life purpose and his calling. <laughs> he compared his own abilities and God-given gifts to those of others and felt himself coming up short. He's too flawed to be used. How many of us have ever believed those very same lies? How many of us are burned out because of it? Friends, this comparison game has some pitfalls. 
it has some real pitfalls. Let me remind you of your baptism, right? Let me remind you of your baptism. What do we renounce in baptism? The dominion of evil, the spiritual forces of wickedness. And friends, they are at work in the, in the comparison game. We renounce them, but how quickly we forget to renounce them again <laughs> and again and again. You know why that's a pitfall? It's a pitfall because it produces a very false narrative. You know, the glorious vacations, the enviable professional accomplishments, the perfect children and spouses that we see on our friends' Facebook pages. Guys, that's just one sliver, one sliver of that person's real life. It's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. A friend may proudly announce that something great has happened to them professionally, but they didn't tell you about the 12 times that they got knocked around getting there, right? We don't put that on our Facebook feeds, right? We may envy suntan, smiling, adoring families that we see on some tropical vacation. But we are not privy to the 30 seconds before that when the mom's screaming at the kids, smile! <laughs> right? Am I right? We didn't see the kids fighting in the back seat, the place where you're ready to sit them out on the side of the road and be like, I'm out of here. If we knew others' whole truths, we might not feel so inadequate when we're comparing ourselves to their carefully crafted public images of perfection. <laughs> the other pitfall, another pitfall that's really important is in our comparing, we punish God's gifts to the church instead of celebrating them. We punish God's gifts to the church instead of celebrating them. The simple truth is that some people are just born with more advantages than others. A perfectly symmetrical face We'll never know what that's like. <laughs> Rapid-fire metabolism, I will never know what that is like. Wealthy parent, I will never know what that is like. Social connections that help them score a coveted job. Yet, when we compare ourselves unfavorably to others, we often beat ourselves up for not trying hard enough. Yeah? We are punishing God's gifts to the church. That would be you. This fact became very personal for me a few years ago. It's a story of my brother, Timmy. Timmy lost his wife. He just lost his wife, Elizabeth. They'd been married as long as I can remember. Had one child, beautiful daughter. He raised two daughters that she had from her previous marriage. And they had a wonderful marriage. Liz, they had seen each other through all kinds of ups and downs, but she, her body just failed her, and she died. And Timmy got it in his mind that his identity was so wrapped up in her, that his identity was so wrapped up in the relationship that they shared that he himself was worthless 
outside of that identity. That he himself, he alone, was not valuable to others without her. He was comparing himself to other people who were married. And he was realizing that there is this vast, big, gigantic hole that she had left in her death. And so you know what Timmy did? He downed a bottle of pills. And then a jug of liquor. And then some more pills. I got a call from my sister who was frantic. And she's like, I don't even know how to tell you this, except that we need you to get to the hospital right away. Timmy's probably not going to make it. And I got to the hospital, and I held the hand of my brother after they had pumped him full of charcoal, trying to absorb all of the stuff that he tried to use to kill himself. And you know what? When he came to, I said, brother, I love you. You are a dumb butt, but I love you. How could you ever, ever believe that you are not worth everything to us? What are you comparing yourself to, brother? It broke my heart. And I laid there crying with my head down on his legs in the hospital bed, just crying and praying that God would show him how valuable he was. That God would show him through our family and through his friends and through all of the people that were around him in community with him how much he truly is loved and seen. Sometimes people just need to know they're seen. Timmy was always a hard worker. I'm happy to tell you that my brother is thriving today. He's thriving because of the grace of God. Amen. Because God resurrected him from that place, you know? But that is the pitfalls. That's the serious pitfalls of this mindset. It's much more likely that the differences we see reflect an uneven playing field, you know? We don't like that. We don't like the truth of that. But hard work just isn't enough sometimes. And then the third pitfall is that comparisons turn friends into enemies. They turn potential relationships into divisions. They turn allies into rivals, you know? In a perfect world, we would celebrate and genuinely enjoy the joys and accomplishments of others. If we use others as a benchmark, though, to evaluate ourselves, that creeping twinge of jealousy can get in. You know what I'm talking about? It can get in and it can undermine our ability to truly cherish the good things that come to others. The truth is that over time, things may even out <laughs> in life, you know? And a friend's success may enable her or him, to support and make opportunities for others, including you. <laughs> so a better way to understand ourselves when we're comparing is what I like to call progressive assessments. Progressive assessments. A better way to figure out how am I doing might be to compare ourselves today 
to where we were in the past (laughs) or where we want to be in the future. I like this. There are good reasons why I think that we should rely on progressive assessments. I think, number one, you're unable to do you when you're just looking at you, you know? You're able to do you and do it authentically. It's also based on a timeline where positive goals can be set. It's goal-driven. Instead of this habit of negative reflection, it focuses on the goals. Am I better off than I was before? Am I headed where I want to go? And then there's this really important aspect of effective troubleshooting (laughs) that can happen when we do progressive assessment. Here are two ways that they can help you. You help structure goals by being progressively assessing. Thinking about where I'd like to be and comparing it to where we are today helps us to structure our goals in a sensible way. Whether we're an adult dreaming of a career change or a college student hoping to go to medical school or having a clear idea of what we need to do or what we have been doing and what's got to change in order to help us to take realistic steps to achieve our goals. And then I said they help us troubleshoot. Progressive assessment can be a fact-finding mission, you know? It can tell us things about ourselves. Are you struggling with a two-mile run today? But you sailed on a five-mile run last week. If so, what changed? It helps us to look at it. Maybe you got a bad night's sleep. Or you had too many worries on your mind. Or you have some kind of undiagnosed illness. It can, it can reveal things to you. This fact-finding is important. But you know what? The bottom line is focusing on self-improvement rather than this negative one-upmanship will have a, will, it'll be a more realistic, helpful strategy for you in life. It'll help you to reach goals. It helps us to uh, be a better friend because we know that our loved ones then can become part of that goal. We can feel the support of our community. So instead of committing to tell ourselves, I'm not worthy or good enough, or I'm not able, we commit to telling ourselves, I refuse to be mean to myself today. I tell my wife all the time, don't you be mean to my wife. I'm merely different from this person because I have my own unique value. And then if you're using that comparison game to be superior to someone, you can add to that statement and they have their own unique value too. And they have their own unique value too. You know what is at odds here, friends, is the flesh and the spirit. That's really what's battling here. I told you there's a battle going on, right? In the dominion of evil. Are we children of slavery or are we children of freedom? That's what Paul's battle is in the Galatian church. We must choose between the flesh and the spirit if we want real freedom and real love. It is the choice between selfish ambition and the high regard that we might could have for others. Between self-glory and and humility. (laughs) 
between the interest of ourselves and the interest of others? Will we abandon ourselves to build up community? I hope so, because our mission is to love all. That means that we have to get outside of our boundaries of comparison, yes? We have to. You want to compare? Compare yourself to the outpouring of Jesus Christ on the cross and live a life that proclaims your jealousy for him and his love and his servant leadership. The Spirit of God is doing something new in our world today. I got a great sense of that at that annual conference I told you about. I get a great sense of it in this room The Spirit of God is doing something new in our world today. There is a dawning of a new age, and I believe that it's happening right now where we're going to move past all this divisiveness. Because you know why? That criteria is starting to lose its relevance. It really is. The tides are turning. The co-laboring with the evil forces of wickedness that we denounce at our baptisms, the hatred, the fighting, the jealousy, the anger, the selfishness, the dissension, the infighting between groups, the enemy talk. The spirit is overcoming. Do you believe that? The spirit is overcoming. You know what's going to prevail? Love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what enhances corporate life. I believe the fruits of the Spirit are going to win. Are you with me? I believe it. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can choose to be dynamic extensions of Christ's own character and love. That's how we're going to love all. It's a love-all jackpot, (laughs) It excites me. But we must be on an intense effort on our part to live by the Spirit, which means that we crucify our flesh, that we crucify our flesh because it works against the Spirit. We must die to our flesh. We must die. We must turn up the peer pressure too. We have to remember to restore others gently. Gently. We haven't been good at that in the church, let me tell you. Mm -mm. We must allow the spirit who has tamed our wilder natures to reign so that we don't act impulsively towards other brothers and sisters. We must give ourselves in service to others. We must cease tearing other Christians down. We must cease that only when the church is a place that stops comparing itself to the world and starts comparing itself with the word, capital W, are things going to really change and the spirit's going to win. You know what's at stake? Freedom and love. That's what's at stake. God surprisingly and intelligently gave us the gift of freedom in Christ to enslave ourselves. So we got the gift of freedom in Christ to enslave ourselves to one another in the bonds of love. Oh, my God. Amazing is that. 
Paul told them, hey, man, the law in Galatia does not determine slavery. If anything determines slavery for Christians, it's love. That's what's going to determine our bondage. Here, we're going to be unselfish, neither Jew nor Gentile, but a new creation where all are welcome, where all are loved. Can we do that? You know who's especially vulnerable? The oppressed. So let's not be oppressed people who oppress others. Let's be for women. Let's be for people of all races. Let's be for people of all orientations. Let's be for all of God's children. Can we do that? You know who really sums this up nicely? Disney, of course. (laughs) In Mulan. You remember that one? Mulan. It's been a while. I love this. <laughs> she cross-dresses, right, as a boy so that she can fight in the military, so that she can honor her family because she's afraid that she can't do that as an assertive woman in her culture. And she sings this beautiful song at this moment. Dee Dee, will you sing a little bit of this song for me? It's beautiful. I want you to listen to some lyrics. I will never pass for a perfect bride or a perfect daughter. This is her comparison, right? If I were to truly be myself, I would break my family's heart. So if I'm an assertive woman that goes out there and stands up for my family and what I believe in and tries to protect them, I'm going to break their heart because I shouldn't be doing that. But that's her heart. When will my reflection show who I am inside. It's time for the comparison game to stop. To stop the false narrative. To stop punishing God's gifts. It's time for us to stop trying to make allies into enemies. It's time to let the spirit have her way on the inside of us. Look to Jesus who loves us. Be jealous of Jesus because Jesus loved all like we're trying to love all. 